Welcome to the Blue Economy Podcast, presented by Rhode Island, the ocean state. I'm your host, David Hirschman, and our guest on this episode is freelance journalist Maria Gallucci, who writes about energy and the environment, particularly in regards to shipping in the maritime industries. We talked to her about alternative fuels and some of the innovation challenges that shippers face in the new economy. Welcome to the podcast, Maria. First, maybe uh, tell me a little bit about your background and your journalism career um, and, you know, sort of why are you covering the kinds of things that you're covering these days? Sure. Uh, Well, first of all, thanks for having me. I'm a freelance energy and environment reporter based in New York City. And I have, for the past decade, covered a variety of clean energy and climate change issues. And in 2017-2018, I was the energy journalism fellow at the University of Texas in Austin. And that was kind of a year-long intensive uh, fellowship focusing on clean energy development, specifically in the global shipping industry. So looking into what kinds of technologies um, companies and countries were developing, where the really interesting projects were, what sort of um, steps are needed to decarbonize the shipping industry. And since the fellowship ended, I've been working as a freelance journalist, but continuing to focus on uh, maritime issues and and clean energy technology in that sector as well. So uh, writing freelance stories for publications such as IEEE Spectrum or Grist. And did you have an interest in kind of energy and shipping before, or or this was just sort of like because of the fellowship, you sort of ended up in that direction? Well, I had been kind of had a general interest in the environment um, at the beginning of my journalism career and kind of developed, uh, sort of came onto the clean energy beat. But then through that, I started to become really interested in shipping-related stories, um, particularly because it's sort of an area that isn't as covered as much um, as other industries, like solar and wind power on land, transportation, ground transportation, rather. So I kind of saw this as a really interesting niche, uh, an area where I could start looking into cool projects and um, interesting developments that weren't being covered as closely as other, other areas. Do you, you know, people say frequently that shipping is, um, you know, it transports 90% of the world's goods. It plays like an outsized role in the world economy. Uh, but it's also such an old industry and it has sort of different pockets of influence around the world and lots of different players and kind of all these national and international regulations. Um, is it a difficult industry to cover uh, or is it, you know, a difficult niche to sort of fi- figure out who's, you know, who to talk to? Yeah, I think so. Difficult, but not impossible. But I think one challenge when I first started reporting in this area was sort of, you know, people don't really know who you are. They don't really know why they should be speaking to you. Why it's in their interest to speak with you. But I found by going to a lot of industry conferences, having conversations with people, they could put me in touch and others with others uh, because the industry is so connected uh, and insular to some extent. So once you're able to establish yourself a bit and start talking with folks, they're willing to help um, to help you out, put you in touch with others. So, yeah, but I mean, certainly I, it's kind of, as you said, it's global, it's extremely old industry. So there are so many facets that it's really hard. It's, it's tempting to lump it all into one solid in, you know, lump it together as one big industry, but it's really a bunch of little industries all over the world. Totally. Well, I guess, you know, uh, we talk a lot about kind of innovation and kind of uh, 
kind of growing the blue economy on this podcast. Um, what do you think are some of the challenges that the shipping industry has when it comes to innovation? I think one of the biggest challenge is the fact that the vessels, especially when we think about large container ships or large cargo ships, these are enormous vessels that are typically designed to last for 20 or 30 years. So, you know, compared to say an electric vehicle where you could have more turnover, you could even tweak the vehicle itself um, to improve efficiency or change the type of fuel that you're using. When you think about doing that at the scale of a cargo ship, it's just a much bigger, more complicated, more expensive endeavor. And so I think that fact uh, for a lot of ship owners or a lot of um, companies in the industry makes them maybe hesitant. We don't really know. We still don't know exactly which fuel will be the dominant fuel of the of the future shipping industry, although we have kind of some ideas about which ones could lead. And so I think there's a lot of people sitting on the sidelines kind of waiting. They don't want to invest a ton of time and money and be wrong. So that's a, a big issue. Well, so, you know, regulations like IMO 2020, which required ships to move away from bunker fuel, um, have created a lot of changes in the industry. Like, do you think that innovation is largely spurred by regulations or, I mean, are there other factors that kind of get ship owners kind of excited to sort of make changes? Yeah, I think regulations are absolutely important. Um, before, so the IMO in 2018 adopted its first ever uh, industry-wide regulations on uh, greenhouse gas emissions uh, with the goal of reducing emissions by 50% uh, below 2008 levels by 2050. And before that happened, there was a lot of inertia and a lot of concern that nothing would actually happen. And granted, a lot of um, experts say the existing regulations are not ambitious enough that we need to go even further. But before that was in place, there was a lot of doubt about the scale or the speed at which this sort of decarbonization could happen. I would say regulations, but also um, outside pressure as well. There, there are initiatives um, by the, the companies that put their cargo on the ships or um, sort of independent observers that are uh, rating ships to, to have the ability to say, this is the better ship, this is more efficient. So kind of making it so that there's a little bit of shaming, I guess, in a way, if you have the well, I, I was going to ask, does competition sort of uh, weigh into that at all, too? I mean, if it, like, you know, if you're more technologically advanced, you're more likely to get more business? Or I think so. I think there, so one initiative I'm thinking of is called RightShip, and they do rank vessels based on energy efficiency and other metrics. And their goal really is to make competition in that way so that if you have a dirty old vessel, it will lose out. Um, but I'm sure there are still instances of sectors where maybe, you know, that's not a priority. Maybe price continues to be a priority. If there isn't public pressure to decarbonize or to address environmental concerns, you know, a lot for a lot of companies, it's just easier to do what they've always done. And sure. there's not really a reason for them to change um, unless they were themselves interested in environmental issues. What do you think some of the um, effects or aftermath of COVID-19 might be for the shipping industry generally, and then sort of, I, I guess, more uh, specifically for innovation in the shipping industry? I mean, you know, there's obvious issues with things like cruise ships going forward, but do you think yeah. that shippers and other ocean tech companies will see significant changes as a result? 
I think there probably will be changes. I'm not sure exactly what they will be or how they will play out. I know there's a lot of conversation happening right now uh, around seafarers and the rights of workers on the ships, many of whom have been sort of stranded at sea for a long time or their contracts are going over. So I think sort of in a non-technological sense, that could be or hopefully would be a significant change in terms of um, improving the working conditions of people on ships. I know uh, the industry has lost tons of money uh, with the global economy slowing down. But at the same time, you see uh, governments, especially in the the European Union, who are vowing to, as they invest in economic stimulus plans, to direct that investment into green technology initiatives. And I think the shipping industry would benefit a lot from some of those. There's a, a specific, specifically initiatives to increase investment in hydrogen infrastructure and hydrogen has been sort of identified as a potential fuel for cargo ships. So um, it's, it's hard to say now from what I've been reading and hearing there, their folks are hopeful that momentum will not slow down, but I imagine, you know, depending on the scale of the economic fallout from COVID, it could, it could change. Sure. So, you know, going off of that a little bit, you know, your your most recent article, which is not out yet uh, at, at the point of this conversation, but presumably might be by, by the time we publish it, um, is about ammonia in cargo shipping and, or the idea of ammonia being uh, a possible fuel for cargo ships. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that piece and is ammonia really a viable, you know, fuel source going forward? Sure. So what really interested me uh, in ammonia and why I wanted to write about it is within the industry among ship owners and sort of these expert advisory groups and classification societies. I've heard a lot of talk in recent months in particular about how ammonia could become this dominant fuel uh, for specific, especially for deep sea shipping in the future. But there actually are no ships that use ammonia as a fuel today. And the supplies of Ammonia made using renewable uh, energy or so-called green ammonia are basically non-existent. So it's interesting because there's a lot of uh, aspiration for ammonia, but nothing actually exists today. But the reason that it seems that there's so much interest is because it is uh, a zero carbon fuel when burned. It is compared to hydrogen and lithium ion batteries, significantly more energy dense. So that means you don't need to have these enormous cryogenic tanks to store on board like you would with liquid hydrogen or massive battery packs. And that of course leaves room for cargo, which is how the ships make their money. And there is a a large ammonia industry today. Ammonia is primarily made for fertilizers and chemicals. And so the idea being that, well, that infrastructure is in place and we could, could we convert the ammonia that's made today from so-called brown ammonia made using natural gas to green ammonia. And a lot of that infrastructure is there. So that's, those are some of the kind of, um, an overview as to why ammonia has been identified as a potential winner in the future. And is this like liquid ammonia, kind of like the, you know, as you would think of in fertilizer, or they have to convert it in a special way that it can become a fuel? I believe it could run as it exists today um, through the engine. That's sort of what the, there's, it, ammonia, another advantage of it is that it could be used um, through an internal combustion engine, so burned that way, or with a fuel cell. Um, but those are, there are technical 
technological complications that are being worked out from the companies I've spoken with. They said these are engineering challenges that can be solved, but that could still take a few years to do. Up until now, there hasn't been very much investment at all in solving those problems. So they're kind of at the very beginning of it. In terms of like cost, what, what would be like sort of the difference between this and like hydrogen and just regular bunker fuel? I don't have a figure off the top of my head, but the um, the University Maritime Advisory Services, um, which is uh, part of the University College London's Energy Institute, they, with Lloyd Register, looked at a variety of these uh, different alternative fuels, and they found that ammonia would most likely have the lowest total cost of ownership compared to many other fuels, um, owing to some of the things I mentioned, the existing infrastructure, the um, energy density. So I don't have the price, uh, a price point off the top of my head, but it would be, that's another reason why it would be potentially a winner is because it would cost relatively less to use it. Interesting. Well, so I, you know, you wrote a piece last year about dream ships talking about some of the more kind of out there technologies that might power ships in the future and are, are already powering some ships. Um, including things like rotosails and solar panels and these like dolphin-like flippers and all that. Um, can you tell me a little bit about what you learned there? And, you know, I guess how close are some of those technologies to becoming a reality? You know, what do you think it would take to get shippers to start implementing things like that? Sure. So I think uh, you mentioned rotosails. Uh, that and other forms of uh, so-called wind-assisted propulsion are actually starting to, we're starting to see more examples of those in the real world. Um, they essentially harnessed wind power to help boost the propulsion and so they can shave off. They, they don't replace the fuel, the diesel or whatever it is, but they can uh, make it so that a ship uses less of it and reduces the overall emissions in that way. And so we're seeing these on uh, different tankers. I know um, Air Seas is, which is a division of Airbus, is about to launch its first kite, which is this high-flying, massive parachute that would essentially tug a ship. And there, which, there which, are which, which would act like the sail. It's just like this large parachute that just is like flying while you're going somewhere. Exactly. It's almost if you picture somebody like para, paragliding or parasailing in that way. Yeah. So it's not. It's anchored to the ship, but the sail itself is in the air, and. I think there are some limitations. So with the rotor sails in particular, if you're if, for container ships that store their cargo on deck, um, there's a competition then between the wind assisted propulsion and the cargo itself. So maybe some of these technologies are better suited for tankers or uh, vessels like that, car carriers. But um, in order for those to take off, I think we'll need to see more examples. So this is happening now with rotor sails because there are more Examples existing, there's sort of that initial fear of, could this work? Is it worth the investment? Is it worth my time? Do I have to train crew? Those questions are starting to be answered. And so that's driving up more interest and investment in the technology. You also had a a piece about um, kind of both in the Pacific Islands and Costa Rica, where locals were switching to sort of more retro and kind of more sustainable shipping solutions. Um, Can you tell me a little bit about those and kind of, I guess, how how do you find stories like those? Sure. Well, actually, and to your question earlier about how I became interested in um, shipping industry, that was actually what fascinated me most at the beginning and continues to. Um, 
I can't even remember how I first heard about it, but there's a vessel called the Aventure that was um, reconstructed in Germany. And actually I sailed on it in 2018 during a voyage from Honduras to Mexico. And so around the world, there's this effort to bring back uh, wind powered cargo ships like that we had in the 17, 1800s to sail cargo around the world using potentially no fuel and it's a very small niche effort. And in the Pacific Islands, that's even more different because they have a very long centuries old tradition of sailing and of using canoes, using uh, wayfinding, using the stars to navigate. And so there's a real effort to bring that back for not only preserving culture and heritage, but also na helping to navigate the future as climate change bring sea level rise to these islands. Um, they're increasingly more isolated. And so how can you use these smaller canoes to serve the community, to bring aid, to relocate people when in lieu of a, say a cargo ship that might come once every few months. So there's many projects around the world. Um, the one that you mentioned in Costa Rica or that I wrote about is they're building that from the ground up. And that's been really fascinating to watch when I visited the shipyard in 2017, they had planks of wood kind of piled around the property. And now they are, have most of the frame constructed and I are hoping to launch it in the next couple of years. And are these just sort of like bespoke kind of model solutions, uh, you know, for people who are just really into um, preservation or are they like sort of scalable, could be scalable modern solutions for the problems of, you know, yeah, I think that probably depends. I think the folks who are building them are, are hoping that they will be scalable model solutions. They don't want to just have these kind of flashy, fun projects. They really are hoping to create a model where these ships could, more of these ships could be built. They could work on kind of discrete routes and trade certain types of cargo and actually become a viable solution. But when you think about the scale of the global shipping industry today, I think it's it's clear that they wouldn't replace the bulk of the goods that are moved around the world, but they're hoping to kind of carve a niche in the places where it does make sense or could be possible to use them. And these would potentially like be more, even though they're like zero emissions, would be sort of more expensive to build or more expensive to implement, presumably, or no? Well, certainly at a kind of cost per cargo scale, when you think about the amount of cargo these vessels can hold. So the one I sailed on, Aventure, I believe it can hold the equivalent of um, three shipping containers worth of cargo. And then you think about some of these larger vessels that can hold 18,000 or 20,000 containers. Sure. Yeah. So on a kind of per unit basis, they're so significant. You just need a lot of these little ships. <laughs> yeah, exactly. What role do you see blue tech innovation clusters, incubators, and accelerators uh, playing in pushing along innovation in shipping? I think they could play a really big role because there are so many overlapping components and companies really need to work together to bring these solutions um, into reality. So, and, and that's how really companies find out about what each other are working on. Um, shipping industry, I think they love their conferences and clusters and sort of collaborating in that way. So you could imagine, you know, if you're developing, for example, a software that makes shipping logistics more efficient, um, working together with somebody who's developing blockchain or uh, working together, somebody who's developing um, 
sensors or things like that. So there's a lot of partnerships that go on, even in sort of the larger, more traditional industry-led initiatives, there's always three or four more partners working together. And are there more or less interesting parts of the world or or places where people are particularly innovative um, in solving some of the things that you're covering? Well, I think a lot of the investment that we've seen um, is coming from Europe. They have, um, especially in the Scandinavian countries where they are relatively wealthy, um, Norway in particular, thanks to its kind of oil and gas reserves, are now transitioning their economies, looking to rely more on hydrogen, for example. So they are investing heavily in converting the, the ferries and the vessels that run along the fjords that they have there. Um, and then also there's a lot of investment in the large agent Asian shipyards in Korea, Japan, China, because those are, you know, huge maritime countries. And so they do have also the investment in the, the money to, to put behind those projects. Japan in particular is also interested in building a hydrogen economy. And so it's shipping industry is part of that as well. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Blue Economy podcast presented by Rhode Island, the Ocean State. And thanks again to Maria Gallucci for joining us today. Please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you use. And if you'd like to learn more about us, catch up on past episodes, or shoot us a note with your comments, head over to our website at www.blueeconomypodcast.com or look us up on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn. From Providence, Rhode Island, I'm your host, David Hirschman. Thanks for listening.